Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We read all the news so you don't have to. We're being downloaded now in around 155 countries across the globe, and at the time of recording, we're riding high on the UK business charts on iTunes. That's us, number one, just saying. Anyway, moving on. As always, we're recording up here in Level 39 in London, the heart of fintech. If you don't know by now, my name is David Breer, and I am joined today by my 11FS colleagues, Simon Taylor and Aidan Davies. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hey, guys. Jason and Chris send their apologies with Jason and MJ off in Vienna doing something awesome with a bank board, and Chris is over in New York. Lucky fellow. Yeah, Chris. Terrible. He gets some (laughs) awesome places. I want to begin today's show with a bit of a special shout out to listener Vicky, who left us a five-star iTunes review that went along the lines of this. This fintech podcast is one of the best crafted and well thought out international hubs for any fintech fanatics out there. They have top level industry experts, founders, and thought leaders. Their pertinent questions really open up discussions on a variety of topics, including open banking, APIs, and PSD2. If I could make one suggestion, and they've probably already thought about this, I'd have more InsureTech debates. FinTech is hot, InsureTech is bound to become hotter. Thank you so much for that, Vicky, and actually for taking the time to write us that review. And you are in luck. We'll soon be starting a monthly InsureTech show, which sounds like you're probably going to love it. If you'd like to give us a shout out on iTunes and give us one of those five-star reviews, keep those coming. Joining us today for the analysis of the news, we have Andrea Sonia. Say hey, Andrew. Hi. We have Jeff Tyson, Head of FinTech and Digital Partnerships at Capco. Jeff, say hey. Hi there, guys. And we have Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of FinTech Finance. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. And and maybe let's start with a little bit of a, a kind of a round introduction. So Ali, start with you. Oh, I uh, host uh, Fintech Finance, a quarterly magazine and a monthly TV show. It basically means I get to go around the world and, a bit like you guys, interview some of the coolest people in Fintech, and it's uh, a lot of good fun. I've also got a, uh, can I plug a documentary? For sure, go ahead. Got a documentary coming out uh, this month, uh, weirdly actually, nothing to do with Fintech, but on the refugee crisis mm-hmm. with uh, your friend uh, Jazz, Jazz O'Hara. Correct. Uh, which is going to be going to all film festivals. So hopefully you guys uh, see that soon. Sounds awesome. Jeff, say hey. Uh, Jeff Tyson, Head of FinTech and Partnerships at CapGirl. For those who are not familiar with CapGirl, uh, we're a global management and technology consulting firm dedicated to financial services. Uh, offices in about 24 countries all over the world. Feel what I had I'm wearing. So I chair both the FinTech and the China Working Group at Tech London Advocates. It's a big private sector-led initiative of probably close to 4,000 people now supporting and championing London's technology sector. Uh, I also run FinTech for the Institute of Directors in the City of London. I sit on a few advisory boards, including uh, Code First Girls. Nice. Busy man. Busy man indeed. Andrew, Good thanks fun. for coming back. Where are you at, at the moment? I'm at the end of my fellowship with um, Antemis, so I had six months of uh, fun and hard work in a very unusual environment for me, quite uh, the first time going out of the corporate environment, consulting and banking and so on, and having the freedom to work on things I'm passionate about, so I feel good. (laughs) Sounds awesome. Getting into it now with the news, and the first one that we have up is from City AM. And this is probably, I guess, the biggest story of the week, really, is that more than half a dozen of the fintech firms are hit by a outage. Was anybody affected by this? I presume we all use fintech on a day-to-day basis? 
Yeah, I tried to buy some groceries with my Monzo card and it did not work. And I felt a little sad. I did. But then I checked Monzo and then uh, I went into the app and they said, our card is down. We're extremely sorry. There was a whole bunch of stuff in the app that told me what was going on. And then when I went into the app and they could see that I tried to do a transaction, I ended up in a little chat with somebody from there. I said, sorry, you know, we really don't mean to like let you down. Hopefully we can get you some groceries. Your card will work tomorrow. Please remember to always take another card with you. It was like falling over themselves to be nice about it. You know, like when you feel really bad because you spilled some wine on somebody at the party. I kind of got that sense from them. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm so sorry. Kind of feel. Yeah, that's an interesting one. How about everybody else? Did anybody else get affected by this? Yeah, exactly the same issue. So, tried to buy some lunch, didn't work. Chatted to one of the guys at Monza. It was exactly the same experience as Simon. Right? So, I think if you look at the speed of response and the transparency, you know, which the operators are, I thought it was fantastic. Just be open and honest about what some of the issues were, right? even if it's outside of your control. So I, thought, I was pretty impressed. Like there is this thing with the big banks where it's like, oh, we're sorry, our cards down. Uh, here's a press release. Versus like, we know you've got other cards. We're sorry ours isn't working, but please always remember to take other ones. Like you, you, you've got to look after. You look after you. You know, it's kind of like is is a recognition of reality that I think is quite refreshing. And it seems like Ed and you were saying earlier that um, people have been quite nice about it to them. Like if this was a big bank, the reaction might be quite different. I think it's a, I personally saw it as a, a comms masterclass. Really, uh, Monzo was the person that I was dealing with most. And their updates were detailed, quite technical in nature as well. Certainly, when I used to work for a large bank, we would never have given away that amount of information. Whereas they were being very open and honest and transparent about what had gone wrong, what they were trying to fix. And that's a level of detail that maybe it's more interesting to me as a bank geek. But I think it's refreshing that they are trying to talk in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think there are some interesting questions around it. Obviously, it was a single provider that failed. So uh, we've got some questions around banking as a platform, weaknesses there. And Monzo made some very interesting statements about, well, we're going to bring that process back in-house. So I think there's going to be some interesting fallout from that. Uh, but yeah, fascinating issues. Andrew, what do you think? People would be surprised, but these new companies have better um, technology for communicating with the customers than the uh, big banks. I think any everybody would be amazed to see the level of technology used in the banks for communicating with I the customers. I think the way customers. that Monzo switched on that conversation method in yeah. their app would yeah. have took certain other banks months. And exactly. Not, oh, not, 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 not minutes. Just to go through 26 layers of approval to get the comms out. Yeah, <laughs> because communication from this point of view was never um, a focus of of the banks. Can we do it in, in the best way? And if you look in the press, you will find all sorts of cases, letters sent three years after somebody died and all sorts of things, part of the communication thing. So achieving something like that, notifying your customers on an hourly basis, what happens and so on, this is I would say, not yet achievable by the big banks. So that's what's interesting. You know, Jason often talks about being real-time, intelligent, and contextual. Like, this is the definition of that. Like, if you don't have a real-time ability to respond, if you don't have the intelligence to recognize what the needs are, and if it's not contextual, like, contextually, this is what your customers are going through. Intelligently, you can recognize that you could be proactive about it in real time. And because somebody in your service center knows this is going on and is trying to manage customer calls coming in. And to be fair to banks, the, you know, the poor people on the other end of the help desk have been doing this with their emotions for as long as banks have had call centers or branches. So the human element has always been there, but exposing that human element through new types of technology, mm. that's very interesting. If you gain the trust of people and you create a brand that people love, then it feels like they're pretty forgiving if you've got a problem. So, and that actually came out pretty strongly in the, the article that Lindsay Barber from City AM actually wrote. So let's hear a little bit from Lindsay. 
Thank you very much to uh, Lindsay Barber, City AM's tech editor, for joining us this morning uh, to talk about the GPS outage at the weekend, which affected several uh, challenger banks. Hi. Uh, Lindsay, uh, tell us about this. What happened? The first thing that happened was uh, one of my colleagues um, got an alert from Monzo. They are a Monzo customer saying, you know, things aren't working. Obviously, being a journalist, what's going on? Checked it out, and obviously it's a strange one in that I wonder if if they hadn't alerted people whether you know it would have been as big a story. But in a sense, it also you know it was good for Monzo. They were very you know very open to their customers talking about what was going on. Essentially, yeah, it was uh, a problem with a supplier, which, as you say, I understand to be GPS. They haven't actually commented on it. And uh, several fintech firms use them to, uh, you know, support their uh, their, their products. Mm. Yeah, and an interesting one. I don't. I'm not sure that this has happened before with uh, fintechs. It comes after. Obviously, there was a big outage for Amazon Web Services the week before, and it just goes to show you that you know it, it's it's not obviously good for for anyone, but it, it's not just small firms that are affected by things like this. It's it's a general sense of this is you know as everything moves to the cloud, as as you know different services work together, that that these things can happen to to anyone really. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned uh, AWS. Uh, obviously, you know a great portion of the internet runs on AWS. That went down. Uh, certainly one of their data centers went down. We lost half of that. Do you think this uh, will have an impact on platform banking, one of the big trends at the moment? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one. It, it made me think about um, at Finnovate um, a couple of weeks ago, the big finance technology conference, a lot of fintech firms, rather than being consumer-facing, are trying to sell themselves to banks, uh, going, hey, don't bother, you know, going to the hassle of, of creating this technology in-house, um, use us as a third party. I, I wonder whether banks have seen this and kind of, you know, they're risk averse anyway, whether they suddenly think, you know, is this a risky move to be trusting someone else to be used, uh, you know, to be supporting our, our services? You know, Monzo have already said that they, they're already creating their, um, you know, that, that capacity um, in-house, which I don't think all fintechs could do that. You know, y- y- there are going to be startups that have to rely on on, on other services. It, it's costly. I don't think we've heard anything from the regulator yet on this, but I suspect a few of those fintech CEOs will be having some tough questions uh, over the next few weeks around how they are structured, how they are set up, are they operationally mm-hmm. sound? I think that will make for some that's, interesting reading. Absolutely. That's that's a really interesting point. It's a very difficult one, I guess, for the regulator. It's tough for a startup because the whole, you know, bootstrapping and, 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 you know, MVPs, you're getting into territory that is very banking and very risk focused. Um, so the difficulty between getting the right balance of those two things is is a very interesting area. I think from the majority of the companies that had this outage, they came out of it pretty well. Customers were happy with the way that they were being communicated with. And it were, for me, I thought it was a, a brilliant display of communications in the face of a serious outage. What did you see? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every bank should should look at this as a, a PR case study. Um, often, 
I, I can understand why why banks are reluctant because they don't know why it's happened. You know, the effect the, the effect of it is seen first before they can understand often the reason behind it, um, and they have to kind of fix the issue before they can talk about it. But I think just being open and just kind of putting their hands up and going, "We're sorry." you know just updating them on what on whatever they know is 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 just huge and it, it seems so simple it seems so simple um and you know banks can definitely learn from that you know no one wants that stock response of we're aware of the issue and we're looking into it in, in every tweet reply and people do go that that that's where these things happen it happens on twitter and i, I have never seen people going Thanks to a bank when it's having a major problem. Like it's honestly, I tweeted about this going, I've never seen someone do, do you do a thumbs up? And, and that got like 17 likes, you know, it's crazy. Um, and it just goes to show you that, that there's a, there's a lot of love out there for what fintechs are doing. I think they, they all dealt with it very well. I'm a Monzo customer. I was very impressed with the transparency, the level of, uh, you know, the, the level of insight that they were giving, the frequency of the updates, the ability to subscribe to those updates, should I wish, you know, and getting it inside the app instantly. That must be something that a lot of banks will be looking on uh, with, very enviously. Thank you very much, Lindsay Barber. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lindsay. So moving on to the next article, and this was one coming out of Coindesk. So this is Dubai claims title of world capital of blockchain. Simon, what do you make of this one? So this is interesting. Um, Tad hyperbole here a little bit. A little bit hyperbolic. But there's a real, real thing here, which is Sheikh Hamadan bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum has set the goal of moving all government documents to a blockchain by 2020. Like, all government documents. And we're in 2017. Like, uh uh-uh, ain't happening. But you can throw a lot of money at this, and you will get some of the way there, because there's something about putting that big, scary target out there that's going to make it happen. But what's going to happen is that all the big vendors, the classic vendors, are going to see that money train coming and take the money off them and go, maybe you could do it by 2025, and you give us a billion pounds, and we'll make it happen for you. And it'll look nothing like blockchain, and you'll get none of the benefit. But hey, you know, it'll feel good. But you've got to respect the ambition here. And, and I totally get why you'd want government documents on a technology-like distributed ledger. Maybe not blockchain necessarily, maybe not something that's open and transparent and everybody can see. I don't know if I want my NHS documents uh, records to be seen by everybody in China, for example. But there's definitely something to be said for a multi-administrated database with um, added privacy and built in an elegant way, like a Hyperledger or a Corda or or some of the more uh, interesting ones like GuardTime. So this reminds me of a story that's out this week where Google are actually putting um, NHS patient records onto something that people keep calling a blockchain, but is actually nothing like a blockchain and is really bothering the deep mind guys. Because what they've built is a Merkle tree root hashing infrastructure, which is one of the nine things that's in a blockchain. It's one of the nine, but it's probably the most interesting thing that's in there. It's kind of like saying, in my car, I have seats and wheels and all this kind of stuff. I like the wheel. Right? I'm going to use the wheel, but I'm going to use it for a different type of vehicle. So that idea of being able to store data privately, to have people audit that the data was stored privately and nobody saw it unless you approved it, and I have maths that can prove that that is true, that's really, really cool. And that could mean some amazing things for banks moving into the cloud, for personal privacy. Like That's truly, truly something. This ambition coming out of Dubai is, is utterly fantastic. It really is. But whether or not the you know the, there's the knowledge 
going in there at the moment you know, is an interesting question. I, I spoke to uh, Ajit Tripathi at PwC to find out more. Right, now I'm here with Ajit Tripathi, who's a director at PwC. Ajit, you were recently in Dubai and you were at the event that we were talking about on this week's FinTech Insider News. Uh, what was it and what happened? We had a day of uh, discussions and presentations where people from you know, backgrounds in law, regulation, consulting, technology, and, and government essentially presented on their perspectives on distributed ledger technology and how they plan to apply it, where they see how this, they see this technology and its applications evolving, and where uh, the, 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 the amazing city of Dubai can essentially apply this technology to provide uh, citizen services and also in the context of its smart cities uh, initiative. So overall, uh, a great event. Uh, We had uh, discussions around the cryptocurrency applications. There was lots of coin discussion, but I think uh, the the focus was primarily on, uh, you know, citizen services and enterprise applications rather than coin, which shows the direction that this uh, technology has been taking. That's very cool, Ajit. And so there are a couple of interesting announcements here about, you know, sort of uh, every government service has to be on blockchain by 2020. Uh, does this mean that, you know, do, is this technology ready for that? Uh, can it be achieved? And, and what's going to be needed to get there? Well, so, you know, you and I have been talking to a certain gentleman named David Birch, and he's been asking what's in the block. So uh, the, the short answer to your question is, is blockchain going to be the right technology for uh, you know, e-governance and citizen services? The answer to that is probably not. But are some of the emerging DLT architectures going to be the, uh, the right way to go for you know, providing shared critical infrastructure enabled by governments that businesses and other you know, government departments can build on? Then absolutely. I think uh, the technology is maturing rapid, rapidly. We will see you know, Hyperledger Fabric come out sometime in April. We will see Coda come out sometime in September with a production version. And, and I think it's those sort of architectures rather than the Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchain right now that will be applied to some of those problems. So I was uh, with the government, uh, you know, with, with Fintech Ali went in the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh yesterday. And, and the chief minister of that state came in and gave a talk. And he, I think... Really, really important, which is that if uh, the government provides valuable shared information uh, as part of its infrastructure, then a whole bunch of businesses can essentially be built on. I'll give you an example. So in India right now, you know, we had this Aadhaar digital ID initiative. Yes. And now I can use my Aadhaar card to book airline tickets to make payments and so on and so forth. So is DLT the right uh, way of thinking about uh, providing uh, critical infrastructure and shared information services from a government? Absolutely. I, I'm, uh, I personally believe that that's the way to go. Amazing. Ajit, thank you so much for your time. Um, thanks for being on FinTech Insider. Thank you. Have a good one. So for those who weren't there, unlike Ajit, did we have any thoughts on this one, Ali or Jeff or Andre? I think that blockchain is not the solution for everything. So just saying that you want all the documents on blockchain, it's a bit... Uh, we're going to get complaints. Uh, yeah, you, realize that you, now, so. you, you set up yourself for, for not for failure, but um, the expectations are unrealistic. So I searched through the article what use cases they have in mind. Maybe they mentioned something and I found this weird thing and I thought, we want to use it for check fraud. We will mark the checks with a QR code which will be linked to blockchain. And I wanted to uh, cry. Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought, didn't you find something better i don't know get rid of the checks or uh, 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 anyway so well, well, there's the trifactor the checks q 
QR code and then blockchain? Yeah, exactly. So, so I was, yeah. <laughs> this is an odd one, right? It's like I'm gonna replace gas guzzling cars with a gas guzzling plane that runs on like <laughs> ethanol and nuclear power, yeah, and you're I, like, I what? So, yeah, so you understand. But I, I agree. Once um, there is um, strong commitment at a country level, and there are a lot of money involved, something good might come out of it. Maybe not what is expected now at the beginning, but. Uh, and you've got to give it to Dubai. Like they've done smart things in real estate. They've, they're definitely their sovereign wealth funds really know what they're doing, and I'm hoping they'll look for the right advice. I agree. I think I agree with science. I admire their vision, but making it happen is a different story. I read the article as well. One of the things he said is, "His Highness has asked us to do today what others will do in ten years from now." Uh, which is a nice statement and a nice vision, but making it happen is a different story. Especially, you're looking at where blockchain is at the moment and rolling this out on a large scale is probably a different story. Mm. I imagine His Highness isn't going to take too kindly to that not happening either, right? So uh, it's going to be an interesting one to watch these ones. So, and, and shout out to Vinay Gupta because all of this might be his fault. <laughs> We've got another story actually after this one, Simon, on CoinDesk. So we have Texas lawmaker proposes constitutional right to own Bitcoin. Yeah, and they're actually altering an article in the Texas Constitution, um, the, the, enshrining the right to use any mutually agreed upon medium of exchange. So this is kind of interesting because I think it plays to the, the gun lobby live in a mountain in Montana kind of like taxes theft mm. crowd, which is actually a vote winner, ironically. Like, I want no government, but I'll vote for somebody that wants no government too. It's, it's a little strange, but I totally get why you know this is a vote winner. And it, it's, it's part of a broader pattern of the creeping legitimization of Bitcoin. Like, this is kind of happening. People aren't really noticing that Bitcoin is making a little bit of a comeback. Like, people the, the people are trying their digital currencies here, there, and everywhere. Uh, especially with um, the near future of Bitcoin, they're looking to launch a couple of ETFs, exchange-traded funds in the US. This is really, you know, people are very concerned. Is Bitcoin going to become legitimate or not? Is it Does it then become an investable asset class like gold? Uh, and then the second thing is keep watching Japan as well. The rumors are still that they are going to fully legitimize it as legal tender. Um, and that would get really, really interesting. So that has a lot to do with Bitcoin's current price. But um, I just think this is part of that broader macro trend where we're seeing Bitcoin just gradually creep in at the fringes and become more and more usable, which, you know, if, if we'd have been saying that two years ago, it was like, Bitcoin's stupid and we should stay away from it and we need our own version of it, which kind of reminds me of like the, the exec reaction to the internet in 1995. It's like, this internet thing is great, but we, it's not very secure, so we should build our own. <laughs> History ha doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Indeed. Um Anybody a sort of a Bitcoin fan in the room? So have you been using Bitcoin? Yeah, put your hand down. <laughs> Simon, put your hand down. Anybody else? I've been following a little bit recently because I think you, Simon, I think you said a few weeks ago that of what the true value of a Bitcoin was. And I think you said about 750 pounds. pounds. And of course, I, I, I was 850, I said. And it's. What, what, what are we on at the moment? It's. About 850. 850. Is that st still maintaining the true it's value? It's hovering there, but there's, the assumptions behind that were that um, the. The speculation around the ETF would continue, and there would be rumors about Japan potentially legitimizing it. So I was there were two like lucky guesses there that, and now where will it end up? Like I'm genuinely 50-50 where it goes after the ETF is launched. So once you can actually buy this thing as an exchange traded fund, I think we're going to see a price dip. This is not investment advice. Um, and then and then maybe we're going to see a recovery shortly after that, and and then it gradually increases. But the the interesting it thing sounds Simon though like you bought a load of it, and now you're spreading rumors 
rumours about it potentially going up. Are you somehow trying to fix the price of I, where I, Bitcoin's going here? I, I own three and a half. So no, I'm just like this is how enthusiastic I am about stuff. It's, it's quite it's, it's a bit more stable now. <laughs> yeah. So weirdly, um, it's if you compare it, it, I think it's in the top seven or eight most stable currencies in the world. Like it's insanely stable. Like if you think sterling in the last year lost sixteen percent of its value. And Bitcoin gained like 10, 11 percent, something like that. I don't know if it was, it was probably more than that, but it gained rather than losing. Mm-hmm. So it's on a bit of a hot streak. But then, you know, something could go wrong after this ETF thing happens, the hype could disappear and it could lose half of its value again. And there are a lot of folks that um, believe that's going to happen. There are a lot of folks that don't believe that's going to happen. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I genuinely don't know what happens next to, to Ali's original point. Moving on to the next story we've got on Business Insider. So this is the U.S. government is defending its fintech charter. So, Aidan, what do we think about this one? The U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, more easily to say, they announced back in, I think it was December time, they were looking at uh, implementing new charters for fintechs in the U.S. And they were effectively going to um, classify them as, as banks, which gave some benefits but also gave some huge uh, uh, Issues. Uh, he gave a speech this Monday at the Lendit conference uh, where he was trying to assuage a few fears around that. Some of the key, uh, key issues that were covered are, you know, the OCC's remit does not allow it to issue charters to fintechs. So there was some uh, argy-bargy between Congress, etc., saying, you're above your pay grade here, OCC, back off. <laughs> OCC has not clarified which, which fintechs would be eligible for charters, so understanding which companies would then be classed as banks. And... Also, there was, a, there was issues around whether issuing charters to these fintech companies would result in lower regulatory standards for those companies. So it's it just feels like a bit of a mess at the moment. And if you bundle that in with, obviously, Mr. Trump threatening to repeal Dodd-Frank at the beginning of February, it feels like real regulatory... I mean, the US in general is on quicksand, but regulatory from a, a, a financial services point of view, very uncertain, unstable, whereas I think Jeff was just making the point about... A, the fine job the FCA are doing in the UK. Yeah, I think it does. It doesn't help us. So if you look at the US regulation, you've got different regulators at a federal level. You've got different regulators at the state level as well. Right? So agreeing some sort of coherent fintech framework isn't as easy as doing something like that in Singapore, UK, or Hong Kong. Right? So that makes it very, very difficult to agree something. Again, it, my ambition, I think, is the right thing to do. Um, but the making it happen is a whole different story. There's uh, contacts of mine sort of saying that um, what's happening here is is not surprising, but that because you've got regulators that are fighting for survival in a, in a Trump administration and trying to prove their worth, you've also got the, the age-old issue in the US of state versus national and regulatory arbitrage of different regulators trying to sort of land grab a little bit and say, well, no, this is a consumer protection thing, or no, this is this is like a commodities thing, or and, and everybody wants to, to make it their own thing. And, and not surprisingly, there are a lot of different regulators feeling their nose is a bit out of place where the, uh, the OCC has overstepped its mark here. But it's, um, it's interesting that in this article that you read out on, on DigiDay, Aiden, that um, there's the uh, Dodd-Frank Act is being seen as, as being blamed for the decline of community banks and business lending, which I can see that playing well in certain voting heartlands. It's like, oh, regulation is why I'm losing my job. Regulation is why there are no more small businesses. And it's like, no, it's probably not the regulation that's at fault here. This is a mac- global macroeconomic trend and it has nothing to do with that regulation. Andrew, you have a... I, 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 I- 
think dot franc has nothing to do with, uh, or very little to do with fintech. It's a version of alternative news, you know. The, <laughs> the, um, actually, Trump said, I, I have so many friends of mine who have nice businesses who can borrow money. And then he went and did this executive um, order saying that he will repeal dot franc. Now, dot franc, let's remember, it's a consumer protection act, and it appeared as a uh, following the the crisis in 2008. If we look at the content of this act, we just hope that it will not disappear because it established a financial stability oversight council to oversee uh, various uh, regulatory agencies. It established the Folker rule. It asked the credit rating agency to register RISEC and so on and so on. But this is not the world of fintech. This is not where the fintech players play. And even if they go in various domains uh, affected by, by this regulation, they will benefit of it, in my view. Yes, it's onerous, but uh, in the end, it, it does uh, fulfill its role. Getting regulated is hard because protecting consumers is hard and financial markets are complicated, right? It, it's not a function of we're just going to make regulation hard because we like things to suck. It's like regulation is hard because these things are hard, right? That's that's the yeah. nature of the beast. But if, if you look at the approach of the FCA typically takes, so when they publish their call for input, they actually ask the industry to work with them to shape a new piece of regulation. Uh, if you look at the approach the, FC, uh, the OCC took, is they just publish something in December without really engaging with industry participants. Uh, and then a, there was this massive backlash. Yeah, it is a very different approach, isn't it? You know, a very sort of dictatorial, this is what you'll do, rather than a, you know, feeling like a community is moving things forward, which we, we get a lot more of in, in, in Europe. Uh, funnily enough, actually, the next story is related to this. So actually, if we look at the quotes that we've got here on uh, Reuters, this is the Canadian regulator starting to take more of a maybe a, a UK approach in it. We're talking about open data in financial markets, which is definitely something from a treating customers fairly standpoint that we've seen a lot of in Europe as well. Esma and, and others have been trying to push for this for quite some time. EMEA 39, for example, um, you know, and treating customers fairly is, is a big issue and part of the reason for the MIFID 2 regulation. So there's definitely a need because I think a lot of people who, you know, the asset managers who, you know, hold your pensions are trying to buy and sell different assets from banks on your behalf, but they don't know if they are able to get best price or if things are moving quickly or if the bank's just taking their time or if the bank's being a douche or not. Like, there's no way of knowing. And the bank has no duty of telling the, the market what they're doing. And, and so, as you can tell, the banks who benefit from that are not very keen on that being exposed and, and discovered and, and regulation changing that. Where Whereas the um, buy side, the, the asset managers, would really like that to change. Uh, so it's uh, it's an interesting one that the it's kind of coming more from the financial market side, um, but they've really been inspired by something that is more of a, a retail and transaction banking regulation in, in PSD2. So interesting one. And just to point out, being a douche is not a technical term in, in banking, just in case anybody's Googling <laughs> that one, just to, just to find it out. But uh, um, is this a case of very much similar to like the national identity scheme, where you get the feeling that the people who don't want it are the ones who are probably doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing? Or is it on the side of people just don't want other people to have that access to that information without uh, their consent? There's probably a bit of that, but my gut on this is actually, I just don't want to do anything because doing anything's hard. Like, <laughs> Banks are increasingly sounding like teenage boys. Is that the, the <laughs> thing that you're giving you know, us like, here? Deep down, I can relate to that. Yeah, some yeah, yeah, a little bit. They're my people, I yeah. guess. <laughs> can we just hang out and play computer games? Yeah. It's like, yeah. But like... But also, I don't want to come across as too banker bashing because actually they've kind of got a point. Like doing stuff 
is hard with the processes they've got and with the infrastructure they've got and all the other regulations they've got and the razor-thin margins and or losses they're having to deal with and the lack of knowledge of how to genuinely transform. Um, you know, digital is only 1% done after all. If you look at the paper they, they, they published, aiming for open data is just one of their conclusions. It, and it, it, the paper is interesting because it, it doesn't look like a paper from one of the regulators. It, it's almost playful and joyful. We organized a hackathon, guys, and we've learned <laughs> a lot of stuff yeah really that that's the vibe of it oh uh, exactly. yeah yeah really have a look at it and they um they said oh we had 120 people and we have learned a lot uh interestingly enough the minister of finance of ontario attended and then they said we realized there were four four things which we have to take in consideration all the teams sold something using blockchain. So <laughs> we have to pay attention to new technology because it's happening around us, not only blockchain, but new ways of doing things. Then open data was another one of their conclusions. Then regulators must be open to new ways of doing business. Yes, tell me about that. Um, and uh, <laughs> let's think about uh, centralized KYC collection and verification because it would make everybody's work so much easier. So it's an interesting paper and it's a pleasant paper. So have a look here. Yeah. yeah, I think you see these announcements on a weekly basis. Right? So similar to Dubai, Right? Instead of some obvious statements, one of the things in there was open access to data is essential to developing financial tech solutions using innovative technology such as blockchain. When I went through the thing, the only specific initiative that was called out was setting up a regulatory sandbox. So what else is actually happening uh, to realize that vision? There's a lot of people coming to the same conclusion. Like, I'm not, I'm not arguing for like a world government being, or world <laughs> regulator being set up here at all. But, you know, I know the FCA are doing a whole load of work to, to kind of share what they've been doing in the UK. And actually, really just leading by example and learning from example would be sensible rather than making the same mistakes that everybody else is making. But wouldn't it be nice if there was a bit of diverse policy response? Like, the sandbox can't be the answer to everything. Like, oh, um, we did a hackathon and we realized we need a sandbox like the UK has. It's like, well, what if you did something different and creative? Like, is a sandbox the only, like, a sandbox yeah. is a great initiative. Do not get me wrong, and there and now everybody's got one. But like, what about doing things like um, making uh, regulation more digital, making reporting more digital, changing the function of regulation, changing how regulation is crafted, actually bringing that into the the software age? Like, are the things that you can change how you do regulation rather than what you're doing within the regulation? So right now, regulation is very much a function of like you have to follow all these rules and prove all these things to me and send a report at the end of the day. What if it was you have to meet this technical API spec? And if you can say, you know, like that would be a change in conversation. Now that means that we need uh, a regulator that has a different skill set, just like we need senior management that have a different skill set. Uh, and I think that's going to be a generational shift. Indeed. I, I was surprised we didn't hear anything out of this, given the blockchain spin to everything of, of kind of automated regulation. I know this is something that you've talked about a lot. In the past yeah, time. I talked to the European uh, an event, uh, Into the Future event, with the European Commission and uh, ECB uh, about that. And uh, it, it's still on YouTube. So. Check it out. Uh, last one of this half is a story that came out of the FT, which was China overtakes Eurozone as the world's biggest bank system. A lot of these stories definitely need evil laughs after them, don't they? And Simon, actually, you called up with James Lloyd to talk about this one. So I'm here with James Lloyd. James is uh, semi-regular now on Fintech Insider. Um, James is the head of Asia-Pacific at uh, EY Fintech Practice. Uh, James, good to have you with us. Uh, how are you, sir? Very well, very well. Good to be back. 
Always good to have you on the show. Um, interesting story this week in the FT saying that uh, China has overtaken the Eurozone as the world's number one banking system. Is there anything we should read into this? Is this just um, one part of a bigger trend? Uh, you know, what's going on here, James? Gosh, well, I mean, I think the first thing we should read into it is expect next week the story to be you know, the fall of China is imminent and, and the banking system is, is close to collapse because we go through these story cycles in relation to China year on year. People still, I think, underappreciate the growth factors in China. To some degree, they overestimate the risk factors. Um, so, so look, I mean, I think it's an interesting data point. I read the article. I've read some commentary in relation to it. Bottom line, China is, is a huge growth engine. Yes, there are significant risks. There are significant issues with the growth in particular relative to, to kind of inefficient resource allocation, and, and that goes with much of the state-owned enterprise and so on. But at the same time, there are fundamental drivers, uh, which I think are, are not to be underestimated. So, yeah, macro, China is on the up and up. Uh, Europe is retrenching to some degree, particularly with Brexit and so on. So I think my big takeaway will be people will continue to prophesize the downfall of, of the Chinese economy for, for many years to come. So, James, what does this actually mean for fintech then? Gosh, well, I mean, I think for, for fintech, there's an interesting parallel or relationship, perhaps, between the, the significant growth in, in alternative lending, peer-to-peer marketplace lending in China that we've seen over the last few years, which in many instances really a reflection on the growth of the shadow banking system in China. So, you know, I think while this is in relation to the kind of non-shadow banking, the established banking system, uh, one of the big concerns, with, which I believe is legitimate and will continue to be so, is in relation to the kind of credit intermediation outside of the regular Chinese banking system. So I think peer-to-peer alternative lenders that we've seen grow in China over the past few years, we're going to see considerable consolidation. And indeed, uh, a lot of these guys are going away over the next 12, 18 months as regulations really bear down on them. Super interesting times for sure for China. Its death may be heralded in the news in coming weeks, as 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 you say. But actually, um, that peer to peer lending space is one that, and the whole shadow banking space is one to really keep an eye on because there are definitely parallels with the two thousand eight financial crisis there. James, thank you very much for being on FinTech Insider News. Thanks, mate. Have a good one. Thank you very much for that, James. And while we pour ourselves another drink, then here's some stories from our sponsor. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Excellent. And back to it. So the next story that we have is in Forbes, and this is the effect of the travel ban in the US on fintech. It seems to be having a pretty much effect in every walk of life now, Mr. Trump. So uh, I guess the effect that he would sort of cause in this one is is quite significant. But the article in Forbes seemed to make a a few sort of statements that it, it felt it would have quite a significant impact, but not sure what you guys think. 
It's interesting going back to the Canada piece earlier. We were just doing a big thing out in uh, out in Canada, and Facebook there has started getting preparing to make a much bigger office presence. So for Canada, it's a great thing because they're getting a lot more talent going going up to sort of Toronto and Vancouver areas. Everybody did seem to want to go and move to Canada at some point not too long ago, didn't they? The website crashed a few times, including me, and I don't even live in the US. (laughs) What do you guys think then? Do you think this is going to have a significant impact or or not? It does have effect on on everybody. So that feeling of uh, freedom and um, being able to move as you want, of course, uh, legally, has disappeared for for many. They, They had it and now they don't have it anymore simply because they have been born in a place in the world some time ago. And more than 100 companies, uh, tech companies, took position against the first uh, order. I didn't have a look at the second one, what the wording is, if if the place of birth is still an, an important criteria. I find it a bit bizarre. I think it affects everybody working in the in the tech industry. I, I haven't seen one single company with a pure ethnicity of whatever sort. So we, we live in a very mixed world in London, in San Francisco, and so on. In fact, I think if we did, we'd probably be reasonably terrified at that point, right? I think that's, uh, <laughs> I'm hope, hoping that's not what he's going for, but, you know, two years from now, we might might be proven wrong. This is a simple formula, I think, from my perspective. Diversity of input equals quality of output. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that you're really risking with something like this. And, and fintech is an area where the more diverse your input, the more creative you can be. And creativity is essential when the challenges are really hard. There are billions of people that don't have access to any kind of financial services, have no financial literacy. These are the hardest people in the world to solve for and have the biggest challenges. And we need creativity and we need people who have those experiences to be able to solve that kind of challenge. And they need to be in the tech hub of the world where the people with the, the technical knowledge are. Uh, this is preventing that and I think that that's a bit of a shame. I agree. I definitely think it's a, it's a massive issue. We all have an impact but you can also look at it in a different way and see there's an opportunity. So is there a role for the fintech industry to play to help resolve the underlying issue which is I think 1.5 billion people don't have any ID. So no passport, it's a no mm-hmm. you know, security records or whatever. Right? So is there a role for us to play with as biometrics or your favorite topic blockchain mm-hmm. right? to, to solve the underlying issue right? as opposed to, well, yeah, let's introduce a travel ban for 90 days. And also expecting these, if you look at what these 90 or what these countries have to do in 90 days, there's no way that's going to happen. So the travel mm-hmm. ban might actually last for longer than 90 days simply because those countries don't have the technology or the systems required to provide the information that the US is asking for. So if Dubai put the, all of their passports on a blockchain, exactly. we've got a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So Con- connected. <laughs> I do worry about this. I mean, equally with, you know, we, we don't generally get through many episodes without talking about Brexit, but it feels like the same sort of sadness that I have about that, really, in, in the, the sense that actually, to your point, Simon, the, the minute you start losing that uh, diversity in terms of what's made a kind of a, a community great in terms of what we're doing and particularly within the UK the the sort of diversity within that community has definitely been what's been bringing together the you know the best of everything around Europe and, and the globe really to 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 solve these problems to your point Jeff so I think less of this can probably only be a negative really in terms of what he's doing but um, I guess we're gonna have to wait and see but like Jeff I'm an optimist uh, I, I think ultimately the Good will win out over evil. Maybe because Ali's here, and I'm thinking about comic book pictures again. But, um, <laughs> I, I, but the you know, in the last six months, I've probably spent more time talking to um, foreign regulators who want to learn from London and export those ideas, and you know, pe- similar initiatives in Europe and similar initiatives around the world who want the knowledge of people in London to go build the, the same where they are. So actually, whilst the knowledge has been built and may leave London, it will find a great home and it will transform 
different parts of the world. So that's true, mm-hmm. and that's why next week's episode will be coming to you live from China. Mm-hmm. Just, just kidding. Guys. <laughs> yeah. um, moving on to the next one, we've got in Wired. This is UK banks fund five million fintech prize to build apps for small businesses. So, Adam, what do you think about this one? Nestor have been tasked by the Competition and Markets Authority to run an event to help build some new solutions off the back of the APIs that they're forcing out the banks, regulating out the banks. Either way, opening up the banks. The Open Up Challenge will give cash awards to 20 winners, as well as access to a unique data trove of anonymized UK banking transactions. Applications open up on the 23rd of March. Uh, there'll be 20 winners altogether, so I guess we should get some of our listeners applying there. I was going to say, yeah, if you're listening and you've always wanted to do something with PSD2, this is a good opportunity. Nesta are a fantastic organization. They're very, very supportive of UK innovation, and they will really help you get the most out of what is a set of APIs that, let's face it, probably aren't so strong because they're new, they're early, they're built by people without a lot of experience in APIs. They're going to be inconsistent. Having Nesta as part of this, I think is fundamentally a really, really good thing. I also like that it's a prize, right? This is, you know, this could come from anyone from anywhere. And, and this article in Wired also talks about the fact that CityMapper in the UK uses open data from the Transport for London to help you plan your journey. That is an example of what you can do with open data. Giving people examples like that is, is really, really helpful for understanding that APIs aren't really about uh, banking and they're not really about sort of uh, the technology side of it. They're about those end-to-end customer journeys, as, as Jason likes to say. It's about changing the journey. And, and TFL is a classic example of a customer journey. But um, this prize also reminds me of um, BBVA Open Talent. They actually have a 10 million euro prize and people there will get to pitch to the board. So if you've always had that fintech idea and you're on the tube or you're, you're traveling somewhere and you're listening to Fintech Insider, like why not Take the risk. Why not look up the Nesta Challenge? Why not look up BBVA Open Talent and, and see if you can be a part of those prizes? 50K, definitely get get it done. Yeah. Next up, we have a story on entrepreneur or entrepreneur, as they say in America. <laughs> nice. Um, how, entrepreneur. Uh, we feel like it we need to like have... Manure. Indeed. We have to have like a, a global vibe to this show these yeah. days. How fintech and payments innovations will disrupt global e-commerce? Aidan, what's going on with this one? Yes, yeah, so uh, a piece written by Sebastian Kanovich, who's the CEO and co-founder of DLocal, who are apparently the number one global payments platform for emerging markets. A really interesting piece, really, looking at how... A lot of fintech solutions are starting to have a great impact on people who uh, previously did not interact with the web. They didn't shop online. Uh, he calls out particularly people like Stripe, obviously a huge fintech unicorn, you know, giving access to payments platforms that just weren't there before. Uh, people like BlueSnap, Payoneer, different forms of paying for goods and services driven by the rise of mobile phones, access. Um, just a fascinating look at how the things that we might take for granted in this country truly, truly started to revolutionize new markets. So we're also seeing, uh, we talked about it again earlier, new forms of global identity, what that means mm-hmm. to people, actually having some form of digital identity. Uh, there's some interesting stats in there around uh, looking at Latin America, where only 20% of people there have an international credit card. So just being able to physically buy something. So yeah, an interesting piece, I guess. I guess there's lots of opinions in the room on what those things are enabling. Well, I, I think the thing on this one that's really interesting is it just keeps coming back to APIs. Like, it's the idea that actually all of these things are being enabled through distributing these services rather than trying to own the distribution yourself in terms of where you're at. And that, you know, I think that's an undeniable trend in, in all of this really is opening up and, and actually sharing elements of what it is that you're doing with other players who can then work harder and, and make it go further. 
I think you see a lot more of these solutions you know, as a result of PSD2 and open banking. Uh, so I think in the next, I mean, look at traditional card rails, uh, what's going to happen to the likes of Visa and MasterCard. Uh, I mean, I still find it very annoying when you have to order something and have to type my details and my card details and you compare it to ordering something via Amazon or uh, buying something via the Apple Store or whatever. It's so easy. Uh, it's literally one or two clicks. So why can I not, can I not have the same solution, whatever the website is, or whatever product that I'm buying? Yeah, completely agree. You know, I, I, I think I said last week, I'm not really using Apple Pay. And then it dawned on me that I'm actually using it at least twice a day to buy my train ticket through the, you know, the in-app purchases through using Apple Pay. And it's the people who sort of make that um, the easiest in terms of being able to consume these things is, is definitely going to be where we're, we're going. This was Dave Bircher's point on the exactly. new show last week, wasn't it? And Dave is, and I've been of that view for some time, which is in-app purchasing is where the mobile payments really, really grow in the next two to three years. Indeed. So next one up, we have a piece in Reuters. So this is on Women's Day Eve, statue of girl stares down Wall Street bull. I'm assuming most people have seen this photo, but it's a stunning piece of work. Uh, it's a marketing campaign by State Street, huge asset manager, and in conjunction with an agency called McCann. Uh, and they've placed uh, an amazing bronze statue of a young girl facing down the famous Bull of Wall Street. I think it's a brilliant campaign. I think it's a brilliant piece of art. They've got a permit to have it there for a week, but I suspect it won't be removed. I, I think there'll be such a clamour to keep it. And the I found out during this that the original bull itself was placed without permit, and it was actually placed somewhere else and then moved to its current position. So... It doesn't work very well in a podcast, but please go and look at that image, look at the piece of art. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And we actually spoke with uh, Gaila Boscovich to find out a little bit more about it. We're here with uh, Gaila Boscovich, the CEO of Femtech Global and occasional co-host of Fintech Insiders. Hello, Gaila. Hey, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I just wanted to get your input on what I thought was an amazing marketing campaign by State Street who have uh, put a great statue of called the Fearless Girl facing down the famous Bull of Wall Street. Uh, Gayla, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I absolutely adore this. And in part, it's because it's reminiscent of something as revolutionary as the Tiananmen Square uh, military takeover from in, in China back in, the, what was it, 1989? Um, that lone figure standing in front of that really oppressive tank as a figure of repression and revolt and standing up for exactly what they, they wanted for the element of freedom. And interestingly enough, I feel like this has that same symbology. And, and the first thing I thought was, that's the lone girl. That's not just the fearless girl, that's the lone girl um, standing up against, uh, against this charging beast. And it's fantastic that State Street has uh, taken the initiative to do this. What's even better in my mind is it's Lori Hanel who's the WG Global Chief Investment Officer. Um, she's you know, one of the, the forces behind the, the statue and the, the creation of that. It's really quite interesting that she's using it as this means to call attention to the fact that uh, boards are underrepresented in the most profound way, that there are no women sitting on boards represented in the Russell 300 Index at all. And that it's time for that that to change, that it's no longer about bull and bear. It's no longer about aggression. It's no longer about violent force of the markets. It's actually about changing the paradigm. And that includes bringing in 51% of the population to represent the makeup of the market that we're intending to serve. And at the end of the day, we're half of the population. And 
we need to be represented in financial services just as equally as uh, those who've been in it for since the dawn of time, so to speak. I think the fact that it's actually garnered so much attention and that it is delighted more than it's been talked about poorly, that that actually is a, a nice thing to see that people are really excited about what this means, what this does, and the fact that it was unveiled on International Women's Day, of course, is brilliant timing. Um, but it's much more than a marketing campaign for State Street. I think it really is a symbol of what needs to happen given the current geopolitical climate, uh, given the trajectory of where financial services is going and having to adapt and really, really be innovative. Uh, that requires you know, enlisting a diverse perspective. You know, at the end of the day, it really is about the more diversity we have on boards, uh, the makeup of executive management, uh, the more that we have them in, in our sites in terms of product design and delivery and services, that we have diversity as a key fundamental driver in making this industry able to adapt. And we can adapt and evolve much more quickly if we do that. And this fearless girl is just a representation of the fundamental need of change in this industry. And I bloody love it. It's fantastic. Gayla, always a pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully see you soon. Thanks, Aiden. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. The underlying message coming from State Street, who are primarily a custodian, a custodian that looks after your money, that faces down the scary market and is safe, um, that looks the testosterone ball of the market in the eyes and stands up to it without fear. That messaging is really, really subtle and really, really clever marketing as well. So I think um, not only is it supporting International Women's Day, but this is a marketing masterclass of all marketing Absolutely, masterclasses. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they know. Today we are calling on companies to take concrete steps to increase gender diversity on their boards and have issued clear guidance to help them begin to take action. I can't remember the name of the company who also published something yesterday where they said we're, we're only going to invest in companies that have, I think, at least 50% women on their board. One that's all over my social media is there's more CEOs called Dave on the FTSE 100 than there are female CEOs. Barclays did a study a couple of years ago that says that boards that have a higher proportion of women perform better. Yeah. This this is just good maths. It's just good business. Like it's not a, an inclusion thing to be nice. It's an inclusion thing because it's effective. Exactly. I, I take a slightly different view on this one as somebody called David Alley. To your point. <laughs> with uh, yeah, with um, some aspirations to do some stuff. But now I'd like gen genuinely though, I do take a, a slightly different view on this one because I think mandating a quota. I don't feel is necessarily the answer to, to the problem. I think the, the difficulty is is that I don't feel it's a, it's an overnight fix in terms of what we what we need to do as a and an entirety of, of a kind of a working group to kind of make this happen. It's a generational issue. And it starts for me um, very much like Leader actually said to us when we interviewed her recently about it's about educating fathers and mothers to treat daughters in the same way as they treat their sons and actually through that and through empowering those people to act and behave in the same way as they they would do with their with their sons with their daughters then actually it feels like we'll get to a point where there isn't a distinct difference in terms of actually either the the attitudes or the the aspirations of, of groups within doing it so while i'm i'm sort of nervous about things like the idea of only investing in companies that have 50 percent women or um you know only uh, investing in companies who have equal parts in, in boards because it it feels like it's a strange step to make uh, I completely understand the, the intent of what it's but trying to do. But if you're an investor, 
right? You have to make the best returns for the people who have invested in you. So you're an asset manager, you want to get the best possible return. If you have a data point that proves that you will get a better return, that means that you would put your money towards where you're gonna get a better return. And as a result, you create a market force that means that companies that succeed more have this. So you create a, a need within the market to push towards diversity. I think it's really interesting economic yes. behavior change in game theory that actually needs to be considered. I take the wider point though, mm-hmm. that it's that's not the fix. The fix is actually intergenerational and is, is being good parents. Yeah. But in order to invest in those companies, you need more female founders to start with. But yeah. that's, a, that's a massive issue as well. You see a 20 year old uh, new executive speaking with the CEO at a bar, you think, oh, you know, they're just chatting. If you flip the gender around, it looks like something else. So that's, I always feel, is something that often gets overlooked when it comes to mentorship. You've got to be that, that not quotas, because I think you're right, quotas are crap. But having a, a mechanism for moving it forward, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Completely agree. Um, moving on to the last story of the week, and obviously it's the 11th story of the week, which is which is good, uh, is a story coming out of Business Insider. And this one I found quite entertaining, if nothing else. So this was the nine best paying jobs in British fintech. And I'm not sure if you guys spent any time having a look at this one. Yeah, I had a little look. It turns out they all pay between 60 and 68 grand a year. So you know what you're going to get if you're in fintech. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting that like you don't go into a fintech startup to, to make a, a ton of money. You go into fintech because you're going to be a part of something. Maybe you're going to get equity. You're going to have great culture. And actually that business is going to grow and your stature is going to grow within it uh, versus coming into a bank where you get in where you fit in and you probably stay at that level forever. The bank's base salaries tend to be quite a bit higher than this, certainly for some of these roles. I mean, there are senior software architects that would be doubling that quite easily um, in a lot of banks. But then how much enjoyment are they getting? How much fulfillment are they getting uh, in, in their day-to-day lives? And how much are they growing? Um, I think that's that's the question. And then, you know, if, if how much is the company they work for growing? Therefore, in five years' time, where are they going to be? Are they going to be exactly where they were? Or are they going to be, you know, really grown into something or founded their own thing? So that that experience, you can't put a price on, I think, from a fintech perspective. Completely agree. Uh, in, I guess the top three was kind of interesting reading, though. So we had software architect coming in at number one, product owner, which kind of makes sense. But the third one was SAP consultant. Well, it's because nobody knows what is SAP was a sponsored fintech? article. Huh? <laughs> is this fintech? Is- yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it felt weird to me because it kind yeah. of implied that fixing sort of big core database backend core banking stuff yeah. was like the place of fintech. <laughs> like any other back office systems and so on, but not not in not in banking. So in banking, SAP is used mainly for deep back office, like general ledger and reporting, regulatory reporting, treasury risk, things like that. In the world of corporations, they they face the same problem that banks uh, have. You have a you capture a payment with uh, five fields or something because this is how the system has been conceived. This is and it, it's the interdependency with the banks. So all the manufacturing companies interact with the banks for their uh, systems. And they're so restricted in what they can do in terms of payment. And they need to move faster. They need to have context about payments and so on. So I've seen an, uh, uh, quite a range of solutions appearing around uh, SAP, but for normal corporation, global manufacturing stuff, in order to enable them to use fintech solutions, to, to bring context to their business and to make fast payments, to link it to the, to, to be able to figure out where the merchandise is and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. 
so there is a lot appearing around that, but I wouldn't consider SAP a fintech job by any means. It's interesting because SAP is that that thing that's in the middle of every big corporation that you can think of as Absolutely. big and kind of old. <laughs> and they are connected with uh, with all the banks around the world. So the, that's a big part of SAP. Actually, in the SAP uh, business, you have a mini bank. Global corporations run a mini bank inside the, mm-hmm. uh, their own um, system, which integrate with banks all around the world. Mm-hmm. And when, I don't know, years ago, 10, 15 years ago, when I was doing this type of job for large manufacturing corporations, I was horrified, horrified, really, how you interact with the banks. That was my first, uh, not my first, it was one of the interactions with the banking world. So while in logistic, on the logistic side, what they had in control, they could manage processes around the world, building railways in China, arranging vendors here and there. When it was about payments and vendors, they were frustrated and stuck in, um, you know, like like, like we are. <laughs> so, so I've been quite fortunate that uh, my only real exposure to having to, to use any SAP system was an expenses system. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I've seen people whose day job is just managing SAP. And this thing, like if you're really, really good with it, it it's kind of like this nuclear power station of complexity. You can, yes, do, uh, you can do amazing things with SAP. Like, as yes. you say, you can build infrastructure, you can run everything yes. on it. But the basic bit underneath at all the banking bit is kind of yeah it's kind of broken fundamentally and, and I think the consultants that can bridge that gap will do well but how many fintechs are actually using SAP I think maybe it's a misleading title but, but I think it's that bridging the gap though between them to your point I've seen actually some really interesting distributed ledger integrations into yeah. SAP mm-hmm. being led from a fintech side of things in terms of what they've been doing and it's it's quite amazing in terms of what people can do around it for my sins actually I um, as a random job while I was doing my A levels I actually implemented R3 SAP into a, a large uh, dentistry chain Random job. No, most people work at McDonald's. That's what I was doing for fun as a child. But it's it was a really interesting experience working alongside uh, you know SAP consultants. And actually, to be fair, SAP is is kind of a an exercise in bad branding to a certain degree because actually they have. Uh, not enough differentiation around their product set in terms of actually what's there. So most people associate SAP with that 30-year-old implementation that they've actually got within a, a banking, yeah. whereas actually the new products that they've got is, is actually pretty sophisticated, but um, you yeah. very rarely actually sort of see them in uh, in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I was quite surprised as well to see an SAP consultant on the list, but if you look at some of the other roles in there, so software architect and developers, you know, I think we all realize there's a massive gap. Right? So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, I sit on the advisory board of Code First Girl, and do it together with Sarah Drinkwater at Google and you know, Alice at Entrepreneur First. And it, this, it's great to see so much excitement amongst you know, young girls and women as well to get into technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, so we did a, a survey at Techlon and Advocates the other day and the number one issue that was highlighted by you know, the, the technology uh, sector in the UK was talent or lack of talent rather. It wasn't funding, it wasn't anything else, it was talent. Uh, so getting these girls and women excited to come and work in this space, I think is a great thing to do. Indeed, completely agree. I've just uh, actually on that note of code. I've just brought my one-year-old a uh, a coder pillar. Then if uh, I think it's somewhere quite like this, it's a uh, it's a caterpillar. You stick it all together, and uh, it, it teaches kids to code, like the sort of the basic thoughts behind it. Wow! And it's a caterpillar. And it's a caterpillar. <laughs> and a one-year-old so teaching to code. That's well, impressive. He's one and a half, and it's for two to five. So uh, yeah. <laughs> it's starting early, but but you say it's a caterpillar. It's a caterpillar. <laughs> yeah. I'm sold. 
Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you, like, no, you, no, don't, no. you don't understand. My first birthday cake was a caterpillar. That left an imprint on my entire <laughs> oh, life. Like that's, that's amazing when you're one. Like I was um I was actually doing an interview with somebody earlier on and I and I made this exact same point. So my, my son's just started first school and they're teaching him coding. Really? Yeah. So they're using uh Turtle. So, you know, the ability to basically draw nice fancy diagrams. It's essentially like this generation's spirograph. You know, they're doing those funny little diagrams. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that is being taught in first school these days is just an amazing thing, isn't it? It's really setting up the next generation with the skills that they're really going to need to repair robots and uh, and tell them what to do. So, Can I just get a shout out for spirographs? How awesome is a spirograph? <laughs> <laughs> Simon's in a particularly playful mood. But uh, on that note, uh, we'll wrap it up there. So, Andrew, Jeff, Ali, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate you coming in. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.